financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Well, uh, this is Dom Tavella, but that clearly is not uh, Michael Hartzman. Today is December 14th, uh, 2021, and at our usual time slot. But tonight, we're going to have a very special guest host who's going to join me for the hour and lots of things to talk about. A prior guest, uh, Phil Blancato, president of Ladenburg Asset Management, terrific uh friend of mine, a great money manager, and uh, will give us some real insights into uh, the markets, uh, hopefully through the end of the year and um, what's going to happen next year. So we're going to have lots of time to discuss, debate. Um, I don't think very much argument, but that's been known to happen. Welcome aboard, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, my second go on with you all. So hopefully I can uh, enjoy coming back. Thank you again for having me back. And I look forward to the discussion. Well, I genuinely appreciate you jumping in. I know it was kind of a last minute thing. Michael had uh, an event that unfortunately came up very quickly on him and he might actually be able to join us later on in the show. But if not, you and I are going to have lots of things to talk about, <laughs> lots of things. And uh, our world uh, does not uh, change. Uh, just as soon as you think something is okay and done with and over, something brand new uh, comes along. So we usually start talking about last week. Last week was a great week for the markets, right? S&P up about, what, 3.5%, right? Yeah, exactly. The Dow a little bit more, and the NASDAQ, I don't know, about the same or so, Phil. So tell us, what happened? Why did, why did the market bounce back the way it did last week? You know, you you have this environment where there's there's a lot of things happening that can pull the market in one direction or the other. And it starts with simply liquidity and headlines. When you look at the headlines of the week prior, they were very negative because of the impact of Omicron and what it might do to the potential for another economic impact from Corona. You know, the virus has in and of itself been this ongoing aspect that we have a difficult time debating whether or not it's gonna affect the economy or not. Well, when it turned out that the, as it stands so far, at least, Omicron, while seemingly is much more transmissible, if you look at the rate of change of new cases in South Africa, specifically Delta versus Omicron in the four provinces where it's been detected, you'll find that it's actually, believe it or not, 75% faster in transmission. So in other words, to be specific, it, it took about 15 days to reach 10,000 cases in where, the, where it was first detected, uh, whereas it took about 45 days to, find, to get to 10,000 cases versus Delta. So Omicron versus Delta, it's much quicker. However, when you look at hospitalizations, it's as of now significantly lower, almost to the tune of about 85% lower, where they're seeing very low hospitalization rates. And in fact, globally as of now, I believe there's only one person that's passed away in the UK, but outside of that, there's been no other fatalities and that that hospitalizations, ICU ventilator usage is still relatively low. So when the market saw those headlines this past week, where was the negative of two weeks ago, obviously rebounded with the positive headlines on Omicron, not to mention Pfizer coming out and suggesting that their third booster worked very effective against, uh, against Omicron. Adding to that, that just today, uh, and this came out last week, but the final approval for the, for the new Pfizer pill, a four-day pill regime with 12 doses, uh, will keep up to 89% of people who are in the hospital very sick out of the hospital or may recover them much quicker. Those kind of 
headlines, headlines around the virus are what lifted the market here. In so fact, Phil, you, you, you brought up liquidity, right? Uh, we're going we're gonna to come up to a really uh, quick hard break and then we're going to get into the real meat, meat and potatoes. But we had that day uh, right after Thanksgiving, that Friday, when everybody's pretty much taking the day off in our world. Uh, not a lot of buyers out there. And we had a real significant uh, correction, pullback in the markets that day. Um, and it's really this positive news uh, over the last two weeks now that has the market rebounding, right? Exactly. And in spite of the fact that we've had the greatest inflation numbers we've seen in 39 years, in spite of the fact that just today, producer price index came in much higher than expected. We expected a 0.5 month on month increase. We got 0.8. Uh, so forgetting baseline effects where it was last year to this year, there is real cost to manufacturing things right now. In spite of the fact that there's an issue around the cost of things, the market was able to rebound uh, and do quite well because the headlines as of now, don't seem as serious uh, as what was originally perceived to be. So, Phil, I'm going to interrupt you only because we're going to come up on this break, but you timed it perfectly because the reason the market rebounded is the news was not quite as bad as the markets had thought. That was last week. Now we wake up this week and we get hit with a headline inflation number that really surprised a lot of Wall Street people, including people like me. I don't know about you, but we, we thought inflation number was going to be ugly and uh, uh, this even surprised us. So now this week and going forward through the end of the year, I think we pick it up on the next segment, Phil. During these uncertain times, know that when it comes to your investments, Labenthal Global Advisors are here for you to assist in navigating you through this. Our insights from decades of financial knowledge work in aligning your investments along with your financial needs. Visit us at Labenthal.com for a review of your entire financial picture. Labenthal Global Advisors. Be well advised. Labenthal Global Advisors is an SEC-registered investment advisor. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. And welcome back to our show with our guest host, uh, Phil Blancato. And so, Phil, we kind of left off really with the start of this week and this inflation number that kind of surprised a lot of people. Um, and maybe the Fed, uh, with the Fed meeting tomorrow and giving us some kind of indication of what they thoughts are going to be going forward. This is going to be a really important day tomorrow. And, and uh, so talk a little bit about the inflation number and your expectations before it came out. And what do you think it does going forward? What do you think it does to the Fed decision going forward? Well, certainly, I think one, uh, you want everyone to understand that for the first time since really the end of 2009, what we're seeing is the markets are in transition. And by that, I mean this idea of the, the Federal Reserve really raising the economy up, inflating the economy with amount of money that's been pumped into the system is now going to unwind for the second time in, in this call it last 10 years. Because remember, we did raise the federal funds, federal funds rates between 13, 14 and 15 uh, and to a degree in 16 and 17 over under Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen. So what's happening now is the, is the, is the equity markets and the fixed income markets are going to have to digest the Federal Reserve beginning to move away from the stimulative mon monetary policy and the idea of whether it's a quantitative approach or a qualitative approach, meaning printing money or just buying bonds, you have a scenario where the federal government is getting out of the way. And it's doing so because the economy is now doing quite well and standing on its own two feet. But that's tough because uh, the scenario now clearly stands out is what does the happen to the equity market and the fixed income market because of the Federal Reserve not being there? And that's what I mean by transition. We're transitioning away from the support of the Federal Reserve to the, to the economy standing on its own. And what's happening now is that the free lunch is over. Forgive me for the cheesy analogy, but we all have lived with the last few years of 
everyone just throwing money at the market and it just goes up. Well, that to me is clearly over. The idea of active portfolio management because you have to pick good stocks and good sectors and know how to manage your money because the market's not going to go straight up in an even bounce simply because it never did that historically, especially when the Federal Reserve is out of the way. So it means that inflation squarely is putting the Federal Reserve on notice that they, in my opinion, did a great job of getting to this point, but it's now time to get out of the way. Whether they were early or not, we can debate that. Uh, I'd argue they were probably a bit late in getting here, but what's going to happen this week and why the market's selling off is probably by tomorrow or Thursday. We're going to hear the Federal Reserve chairman come out and say they're going to double up on the bond buying program that they are, in the, I'm saying it in reverse, they're going to decrease the amount of bonds they buy from 15 billion to 30 billion per month. In other words, this very stimulative approach is beginning to unwind. But let's not forget, not out of the way yet, they were buying $115 billion a month worth of bonds. So the US Treasury prints the bond, the Federal Reserve would buy them, that money gets infused into the banking system, and something we call the M2 money supply. So they're going to go from 115 down to 100, that already happened. Now they're probably going to go from 100 down to 70, and then eventually down to 40, then eventually down to 10, and then so, Phil, um, I just want to make sure our viewers get this part of it because this, this is I get this a lot. What does that have to do with me? Why? How does it affect me? This process that you're describing is really the Federal Reserve intentionally keeping interest rates lower than they normally would be, which makes everything from home buying, business startups, business loans, makes that cost lower, makes it more stimulative for the economy to move along. So they're going to take away these artificial tools, right, that are keeping interest rates artificially low and let it become more natural, more economically driven. Well, you use a key word, the natural rate is generally considered, considered inflation plus the Fed funds rate. Wait, 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 Phil, that's a scary number. We saw, we saw the inflation number. If that inflation number were to stay where it is, you're talking about interest rates that could approach double digits. Correct. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. And I can, we can get to where I think inflation is going just to give you the, the, the sneak peek. This is the highest print we're going to see on inflation, in my opinion. It's going to go steadily down from here. Uh, and the reason why, as the supply chain on, on wines, not but by the first and second quarter of next year, you're going to see a supply glut. You're going to see all kinds of chips and stuff and all these things that we've been waiting for. As this unwinds and, and we get to that better place, the glut will then bring inflation down. Remember, technology is deflationary. Old, old aging demographics are deflationary. So this, to me, is, is the worst of it that we're going to see. Maybe December might be the same, and then we'll start to trend down from there. So I don't think we have to worry about interest rates being up at 6 or 8%, uh, but certainly higher. So what that means is, as the Federal Reserve gets the other way and Dom's right on, right now, by being the buyer of most of the bonds that are printed each month, it keeps interest rates low. The more buyers we have, the more rates, rates stay low. But as they get out of the way and they're no longer the buyer of last resort, rates go higher. So that does two things for markets. One, in your bond portfolio, you lose money because as interest rates go higher, prices go lower. They're inverse relationships existing bonds aren't as valuable as new bonds. And that's why that happens. The equity market generally does a very good job of early stage inflation. Believe it or not, the place to be when things are inflating is stocks. Why? Because companies earn more money. Everything inflates, including corporate balance sheets. But stocks are already quite expensive. We're looking at something we call price to earnings ratio, or the price of a stock divided by how much they earn, P divided by E. It's a standard measure, and you're looking at stocks are basically anywhere from 25 to 50% more expensive than they were pre-pandemic. So since stocks are not inexpensive and bonds are under pressure of rates going higher, the markets become very volatile, and that's why this week it sold off. I think it's temporary, but that's why it sold off this week. 
So let, let's do this a, a step at a time. So we think this week the Fed Chairman Powell does what? I think he's going to increase the bond bond, the bond reduction. I, I'm increasing to decrease. And so sig gonna... it's signaling to us, the markets, that over what timeline do you expect interest rates to actually be starting to go higher? So I mean, the Fed raising interest rates. I think yeah. artificially they'll go higher before that. But if I'm right that they go from reduced from the amount of bonds they buy for a month, go went from 115 already to call it 110. If they go down to 70 and so on, they'll stop buying bonds by March. That's phase one. So in phase one, interest rates won't go any higher, except if they organically go higher because they're not the buyer left. I mean, the market just drives them higher. The Fed doesn't have any input on that. Then they'll probably take a pause, I would guess, of one to two months, maybe three, a full quarter to see where we are from an inflationary standpoint, which puts us somewhere about June. So my expectations are somewhere between June to August, we'll get the first Fed rate hike, which by the way, generally August and September are two pretty tough months. So I'm gonna expect the August and September of 2022 is your first significant correction. Something to tune of 10 to 15% to clean the market up. All right, well, you hold, you hold off on your 2022 predictions. I'm trying to get through this week to the end of the year. Connects. I'm a slow guy. You got to take it. You got to go slow with me. Right. So, um, so we, I'm teasing a little bit. We do expect some real volatility here as these news change announcements uh, all get digested by the market. But do we recoup a little bit? Do we get our Santa Claus rally through the end of this year? Or we may have given it up at this point based on what the Fed does. Well, I mean, if they start raising rates next year, we can expect lots of volatility from that. You'll actually start to make money in your savings account, which I've made in a long time. But as far as where we stand right now, some of the euphoric data we're going to see in the next few days here about the greatest spending season in the history of the United States, the history of the world for that matter, $850 billion to $900 billion is being spent on holiday season. So in spite of the fact that inflation is out there, depending on, we can go over which asset class you want to talk about, Restaurants from 2019 to, to, to by the first quarter of next year will could be up as much as 100% in cost, easily year over year, anywhere from 10 to 30%, depending on the chain you're in. But people are still going out to restaurants and spending. So we're finding is that because consumers are flush with cash, inflation so far hasn't hurt a whole heck of a lot. They're spending it, and they're spending it quite, quite quickly. And in that regard, we're going to have a really strong end of the year. Now, let, granted, we're already you know, just about done halfway through December here, and we're up nearly 27% on the year, 26 after today, it looks like. Uh, we're probably going to end up, I would guess, adding another percent or two into the end of the year. I would expect that last week of the year to be a strong week as people put cash to work before the year ends. Markets, money managers will, will, will enter the markets there to clean up capital gains and things like that. There's natural component to the market that drive cash into it. December is the best month of the year. It tends to have, the last quarter of the year tends to have at least a 6% rate of return with November, December combo being the two best months, and December using the total best month of the year. So, Phil, yeah. putting you on the spot, because what, what a very, very well-known, famous Wall Street firm today announced, don't buy the dip. Do not buy the dip. Are we buying a dip, Phil? Are we, are we putting the money to work during this time? The, dip. The, only re the only way I would be squarely wrong, and I would wait another couple of days, uh, is that if Chairman Powell comes out and acts more aggressive than we would anticipate, meaning they reduce the bond buying program by not 30 billion, but maybe 40 billion or 50 billion. If they get very aggressive because they got scared of, of, of the print, the inflation print that came out, then the, <clears throat> excuse me, the market's going to get quite volatile. And it may not quickly rebound to that because they realize that that may be such a dip that it will take some time to get through it. 
in my opinion, when we're going to see the economic data for the fourth quarter be so robust, averaging somewhere around a 6% GDP, and I don't think Omicron is going to slow us down. In that sense, I think you buy the dip and you enjoy it for the first at least quarter, second quarter of next year. I would agree in that, think of it in this context, Tom, it's really important. If we get a GDP growth in the fourth quarter this year of around 6%, the expectations for the fourth quarter of next year are 2%. So the idea of going from a very high to a very low number, well, an average number, means the return back to normal, our normal GDP growth is 2%. Our normal inflation is around 2.5%. As we get back to normal, that means we got to get back to normal earnings growth, normal interest rate cycle. That could be a slow and painful process, which I think we'll get through it. The first quarter, I'm, I'm, I'm looking very optimistic on for next year. But after that, I would expect significant volatility. So enjoy the run, play the dip, and just be mindful that it's going to get, more, going to get harder after the first quarter of next year. Again, I'm focusing on trying to get us all through healthy as can be through the end of this year. But boy, Phil, if you own, I mean, the S&P is a great number year to date. Um, but like last year, just one or two particular stocks have had a dramatic effect on the return of the S&P. And boy, if you own some of those winners last year, you've been hurt. Uh, you know, the Zooms and the Teladocs of the world. Um, some of these stocks have just painful really painful if you own them uh, didn't get out of them there's a lot of things like that that have been really crushed because of it i agree with you completely and and some very bright people right uh quite a few hedge funds bet these these game and and they're they're losing heavily right now so um i have my own opinions about it but i'd love to hear yours um is there not a buying opportunity in that space or it still gets more painful no, I, I don't think we see a real profound bounce in the, in the stay-at-home traditional growth stocks that drove us so much higher. Let's not forget, in fairness, the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 are still representative of, of the bulk of the return. Over 40% of it is from those top 10 stocks still to this day, the Microsofts of the world and the Googles and so on. And I Phil, I heard, a, I heard a number the other day, and, and jump in if you, you can correct me or give me more accurate data, but uh, Apple being uh, responsible for about 10% of the 20 some odd percent, just yeah. Apple alone performance is responsible for what, 30, 40% of the performance of the S&P 500. Correct, and in fact, most of the S&P is flattened down on the year. You'd be surprised. There's quite a few names that are down, as you mentioned a few. That's why being diversified does matter, though. We have had a rotation back to some of the cyclical names. You know, think of how the banks have done this year. Think of energy have done this year, utilities. So this year, if, you, if you, I'm sure you listen to Dom along the way, it's been about balance. So I think for the rest of the year, as long as you have some balance in the portfolio, you own where, think of it this way. I want you to think about for the next couple of weeks, Buy stocks or buy sectors in places where you personally spend money. Do you go to Costco? Love the name. It's up a bunch. But do you go to Macy's? Do you, where do you get your gasoline? Uh, where, where do you buy your clothes? Where do you buy your groceries? Some of these names, I think, are where people are going to spend their money. And some of it is staples, things you need every day. And some of it's discretionary, things that you really want to own. Think about what's your favorite motorcycle brand? What's your, what's your favorite car company? Things that, you know, where we see people spending money is where the opportunity is. And I don't think it's in the, the Pelotons or the Zooms. I don't know that you want to exit some of those great names as well individually, but I wouldn't be adding to them here. I would certainly wait till we get to a normalized environment and we understand what the impact of higher interest rates are going to do to growth style companies. To not really bore you, but interest rates really hurt growth companies more than they do traditional value companies. And the reason why is because growth companies are more dependent on debt versus value companies. 
Well, Phil, uh, two two quick points. The first is, uh, and I really do use it in my own allocation strategy. Look where the consumer goes. If there's one thing you can bet on is the American consumer and their ability to spend money. If they can spend money, they're going to spend money. And I, I do agree with you wholeheartedly. I expect a robust holiday season. And I think that's going to be a big driver to some of these companies. Um, but quality, quality, qualities are other theme. I think, I, I, I don't know that you can look at some of these companies that didn't have strong balance sheets, how they're going to do well and or even survive over the next 12 months under a much more difficult environment. So I think you really have to uptick your quality, in your portfolios. So I would uh, agree. I would jump agree. in on that. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. Oh, keep the theme in mind going forward. You want to be paid to wait around, but you want balance, right? So you want to have maybe 15, 20% of your equity position in those growthy names that are future tech. I completely agree with maybe you like the charging stations of interest space, maybe the battery space. Uh, I'm not a fan of this, the green, green energy, wind and water, solar. That's a tough place to win at. But what car companies are going through a transition you know, where is the future tech matter to these days? And if you did get a Zoom or something like that inexpensively, I'm not a big fan of Zoom, but you know, which one is tomorrow's technology today? And I think some of that makes sense. But where I do think you need to finally have an allocation is being paid around, being paid to wait around, meaning what stocks are going to give you a two, 3% dividend? Where are you going to be able to earn some income in your portfolio plus get some growth? And I think you want to think the word GARP, growth at a reasonable price works really well in a volatile environment. And growth means not just growing at any cost, like we did in some of the, gro- the growthy names, like the big Zoom names of the world, if you will, to not beat up on Zoom. But, uh, but I think you want growth at a reasonable price for the company's paying a good dividend. And you know, think about the, some of the names we already talked about. What is it? The, is it the banks that are going to do really well in rising rate environments? Is it energy companies? Is it your, your traditional, your, your John Deere's, your Caterpillars of the world? GM, a stock to me that looks like it's really in great positioning only because you're looking at, a name is going to pay a nice dividend. It's continuing to grow and you're buying it less expensive than you are in a, a growth stock that could be trading at 40 times PE ratios where it should be trading at 25. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, so obviously we're, we're hearing higher interest rate environment and typically you hear that growth stocks don't do well because uh, you have to discount their future earnings and, and that becomes a, a liability for some of these really aggressive growth companies. But there are really good quality growth companies, good strong balance sheets, and their sales are not going to go down. Um, why, why? I mean, we're hearing a lot of talking heads on TV. Why are they talking about getting rid of your good quality growth stocks? Even some of these very large tech stocks. Oh, you should be out of these names. And I don't see it, Phil. Well, Facebook is down, what, 40% on the year? Uh, last I looked. You know, so I, I do think you want to look at some of these growthy names. If you already own them, I wouldn't sell them. Uh, I do think it's a, never a bad idea to take profits. Sometimes we forget, for example, how many of you out there who own Tesla have never taken a profit? That's silly. There's a lot of car companies who are doing really quite well in the space. Volkswagen makes more electric vehicles today than Tesla does. So tell me, it tells me that there's going to be a point where the lack of growth of Tesla's to come. But I do want you to think about the names you don't own. What's the price you think are, are, are really on sale for Zoom or Peloton or, you know, uh, strike, um, uh, CloudStrike. You know, some of those names that are the really quality names that have really been hit hard, when you get a chance to buy them cheap, I think you take advantage of that. And so I do think you want balance in your portfolio, but I would agree with them. You don't, these, these future tech companies that do have strong balance sheets, if you can get them a bit cheaper here, that does make sense to me because I wouldn't expect double-digit returns after that. But if you're getting 
you know, six and eight percent return, which is a normal rate of return in, in any normal environment. Which we, if we go back to normal, normal, that's what you should expect. I think you do look for opportunities to buy stocks cheap. Um, so we got about a minute and a half, so we may have to pick up this this question a little bit more deep in the next segment. But you know, de a decade of internationals undervalued, internationals undervalued, and here we are again, where one of the, one of the sectors that's being touted as uh, an area you have to put some money in is international stocks, way undervalued versus U.S. stocks. And you just mentioned Volkswagen actually makes more electric vehicles than Tesla. Um, why not own some of these high quality international stocks? Uh, the short answer is we have made money there, as you said, in a long, long time. The recovery hasn't yet happened in Europe the way it has here. U.S. consumer represents 25% of global GDP, 70% of U.S. GDP. If we see the U.S. consumer begin to buy more offshore goods and you see that recovery begin to happen, I think you can enter Europe. You just want to let's make sure it's happening. Let's get conviction that we're seeing real growth there before we make that trade because it hasn't worked in a long time. However, if the dollar weakens as the Federal Reserve gets out of the way, there's your shot in international. Let's watch the dollar before we make that trade. Uh, so perfect timing, because I want to delve a little bit deeper into that question. We're going to take a quick break here and come right back and pick up on that subject. Are you paying federal taxes on your cash? I work hard for my money that I keep in cash. And for the life of me, I can't imagine why anyone would want to pay federal taxes on their cash. That's why I keep my cash in the Lebenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. Symbol L-E-T-A-X. Le tax. Rates on cash are already so low. Why pay federal taxes on the interest your cash earns? Remember, it's not what you earn. It's what you keep. The Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund, L-E-T-A-X, may help you earn more on the cash you've worked hard for and keep more after-tax dollars in your pocket. Find out more about the fund by speaking with a Labenthal Global Advisors Private Wealth Advisor or its sponsor at dcmadvisors.com. For your hard-earned cash, why pay the tax when there's the tax? Labenthal Ultra Short Tax-Free Income Fund. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, a copy of which may be obtained by calling 800-441-7031. Please read the prospectus carefully before you invest. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. There is no guarantee that this or any investing strategy will be successful. An investor should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the fund carefully before investing. The fund is distributed by Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC, member FINRA. The fund may invest in municipal securities, the interest on which may be subject to federal alternative minimum tax. After the fund buys a security, the IRS may determine that a bond issued as tax-exempt should in fact be taxable. There is no affiliation between DCM Advisors, LLC, and Ultimus Fund Distributors, LLC. DCM Advisors and Ultimus Fund Distributors are not affiliated with Labenthal Financial Services, Inc. or Labenthal Global Advisors, LLC. Good evening, everybody. This is Dom Tavella, normally here with my partner, Michael Harsman, but tonight we have a guest host, uh, Phil Blancato, who is the president of Ladenburg Asset Management. And Phil, well, how much do you have under that umbrella now that you're... Uh... Well, it's uh, interesting, uh, about $5 billion that we manage on discretion. And today I'm also the chief market strategist for a firm called Advisor Group, where we advise on half a trillion dollars. We put out uh, research and information models, suggestion, asset allocation for for about half a trillion dollars. So you're buying for the beer tonight when uh, we go hang out. 
And that's yeah. a joke because we both have other commitments. But uh, but yeah, congrats. Uh, that's an amazing accomplishment, Phil. Uh, and I know you have a, a terrific partner that's helped you all with, over all these years. Um, but still, that is amazing. And we've known each other now for, oh, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years. Um, and I love it. It's been a while. And I love picking your brain. Um, not that we always agree. And I, I enjoy actually more when we don't. Um, but lately, I think we've been a lot on the same page. So uh, we left off with international. And it's again, it's, uh, it seems that the street, Wall Street has a, a tendency to tout certain areas, certain sectors, not that they're always correct. Um, but the, all I hear these days is international, international, international. And um, I do agree that they are behind us in the recovery uh, mode. They got a, a slower start and a slower start to the vaccinations, but they're, they're catching up, right? Um, but they're not at the level of recovery we are. So is it is kind of where you start putting your foot in the water here, your toe in the water and saying, hey, uh, they will recover. We're, we're kind of proof of that. And maybe we get in a little early. Um, again, you kind of touched on that. So go ahead, expand. You know, if you were going to dip your toe in the water, I'd rather see you go into emerging markets over international development. There's still some political strife with Brexit. They obviously have had a tough time combating the COVID virus. Uh, I think they've done a, not nearly as good a job as the United States. I know not everyone would agree with me because their vaccination rates are higher. But if you look at the number of cases, number of fatalities, Europe is far away more than the United States. Uh, so in that sense, I, I think they still have struggles there. I'm not sure they've worked out the European Union experiment to do the same degree. Now they are a bigger manufacturing mess and they will get a huge boon by the idea of manufacturing renaissance because they're more value old world than new tech. They do not have the technology sector that we have. So if we do see a global cyclical recovery, there's a chance to go in. And if the dollar, the US dollar weakens, which is a possibility as the Federal Reserve begins to get out of the way, if the economy cannot stand on its own two feet or if the Fed misses, if the Fed is late, and we're going to see rates stay higher and lead us into recession because things just get too expensive. Then the dollar will weaken and international will finally win. I just don't know that we want to make that bet yet. So if you want to make a bit of a, a reach into Europe, I would say the emerging market complex is quite interesting. The Asian Pacific Rim also still struggling with the COVID virus. They don't have the vaccination rates we do, but very inexpensive. From a, which sector, which is the cheapest market in the world right now? It's emerging markets. Justifiably, we haven't even China hit a huge rebound, but it's also slowing down a bit now. However, I think with the bounce you'll get out of the Winter Olympics, as well as uh, this kind of manufacturing renaissance, this global renaissance, as the supply chain works itself out, I think you could actually do quite well in emerging markets. Now, it doesn't mean 20% of your portfolio, maybe three to five. But that's if you're going to take some risk overseas. That's All right. So this is this might be our first disagreement of the night. So we we both are on the same page that interest rates are going to go higher. Right. Interest rates go higher. U.S. government securities become more attractive to foreign investors. How does the dollar weaken? Wouldn't you argue that the dollar would get even stronger than it is right now? It could if other economies weaken with us. So in other words. The ECB has also began this program of reducing its bond buying. Uh, they're not nearly as aggressive as us. Uh, Brazil, for example. Brazil is really trying to combat inflation by quickly raising interest rates. Well, there are other economies around the world that are facing this as well. If the United States has a misstep, then the dollar will weaken. So let's assume the Federal Reserve got it wrong. I have this funnel save phrase I like to use all the time, which is, I will bet you dollars to donuts. If you know what that very famous dollars to donuts used to be, <laughs> very inexpensive versus 
You're going to need more dollars. That's called inflation. Uh, You want more donuts, you're going to need more dollars. That's the definition of inflation. So my phrase doesn't really work anymore. It must have my disappointment. So let's assume that the Federal Reserve got this wrong. Then inflation runs hot. The interest rates go much higher. And now the cost for companies to borrow debt goes from, you know, 2% what it is today to six or eight. Then all the things we go to buy become very expensive and stay very expensive. We fall into a recession. In that environment, the dollar will weaken because the rest of the world maybe either got it better than us, got it a bit smarter than us, or was able to not fall into a recession because our, their, their federal reserve government, didn't, their central bank didn't get it wrong. So that's, that's the scenario we're in. The dollar's been strong, has stayed strong. We're still the global default currency. We're still, still the, the, global, the strongest economy in the world. We have the best consumer in the world. We have the greatest net worth we've ever had. Our demographics are better than Europe. They have a negative negative demographics. Ours, up until recently, were still positive. So there's a lot of reasons to be very optimistic that the dollar will stay strong. And we can debate whether that's a good thing or not for us as citizens. But certainly, uh, if if we begin to see any weakness, that's that's one reason to go international. Or is it just that they really begin to grow at an aggressive pace? And if that's if that's the case, then there's an opportunity there as well. Hasn't happened in a long time, though. Uh, look, uh, Phil, and and again, I can make light of it because I think we've been okay in our allocation. Uh, um, but you you really would have done well the last decade if you underweighted the international exposure in your portfolio. And as you and I both know, many large institutions create that allocation. They stick to it. They figure it's going to work out over time. Hasn't really worked out in a decade. It really hasn't. So it's punished yeah. them. It's punished them for not uh, being a little bit more flexible in their in their allocation. So I'm the first one to be honest with you. When I make mistakes, I'll say it. We had an emerging market allocation to Asia, and we were early. We we're down about uh, 20% in the position, except as a portfolio manager goes, we only made a 2% allocation position, so very little bit of money to take a lot of risk in a portfolio, but not nearly as painful as if we had a 15, 20, 25%, which I couldn't do because of the unknowns. We had a strong belief that China would recover. It did. Uh, but what we're seeing is because of the strength of the dollar and because of the politics in China, much of what we own companies that have double and tri- triple digit earnings growth, but yet because of the imposed restrictions from the Chinese government, which no one saw coming, add to that the, the controls being play, put in place around technology and what, what it means for the average consumer there. They have the biggest consumer in the world, over a billion people buying things. They do everything on their phone. And it's all under scrutiny. We have seen a real, real downtrend in Chinese stocks. Not to mention the tariffs are still very much in place in the United States. So what we expected to happen was tariffs to unwind and the Chinese consumer to be a boom. Didn't happen. So in when you think about managing money, you, if you're taking a riskier bet that has other things, so you want to make sure it's a small amount of money. It's not like buying the S&P 500 where that's a very different analogy. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, you already brought it up, uh, but I actually was going to bring it back to that exact point, Phil. You took a risky, I use the word risky bet here, maybe the, the riskiest bet in your portfolio, but you made it a very small portion of the portfolio. So if it worked out great, fantastic, but if it doesn't work out great, you didn't blow up the portfolio. And that's a theme I know we exercise in our client portfolios. Look, we'll, we'll allocate to certain spaces, but we're never going to bet. Uh, any dumb bets anyway with large portions of your portfolio. And I think that priority one has to be to protect client portfolios and that's how you do it. Yes, for sure. Uh, you know, and that's where you can, you want to be able to rotate your portfolio to look for opportunities. Uh, and in fact, when markets normalize, as I staunchly believe they will next year and more so into 
2023, when we get to a more normalized environment, you're going to have to take risks to generate return. Think of a scenario where interest rates slowly grind higher. And let's assume the natural rate is probably two and a quarter, two and a half percent, because the Federal Reserve raises interest rates probably eight times over the course of the next two years. That gets the Fed funds rate to two percent. Inflation at that point should probably be about two, two and a quarter percent. And the natural rate is usually somewhere in between the end of the Fed funds rate and where inflation is you know, perceived to be. So that means interest rates on the 10-year U.S. Treasury could easily get to three, maybe three and a half percent. Oh, that's going to make all your, everything more expensive. You, know, you just go buy a home, your mortgage will be that much more, which means you bring home prices down finally after a, a real- Or, or maybe even, even just they don't go up as much. Or right? uh, Yeah, fair point. Even, even, but that's a really important point, Phil. Again, how does it affect me, this talk about the Fed? Well, mortgage rates right now, historic lows, historic, right? Um, and you could see them a year from now substantially higher. Now, substantially higher might mean- uh, Four and a half, five percent thirty-year mortgage, but that's going to affect somebody's budget and their ability to buy a house or maybe a business or maybe a commercial piece of property or lease a car. Right? These higher interest rates put the tap tap the brakes on the economy. This is how it works. And so, in that environment, when you think about where you're going to make your risk bet, you're going to have no choice but to make some risk bets, your risk budget, if you will. How much of your portfolio are willing to put at risk? to drive returns higher because you're going to lose money in bonds as interest rates go higher. You're going to pay more for your debt, whether it's your car loan or your house loan. So that means losing money in bonds, they'll act like insurance in the portfolio. I wouldn't suggest being out of them, but probably owning less of them. Probably taking risk in your fixed income to generate return and maybe high yield or, or preferred, something like that, maybe floating rate notes somewhere to, to try and be ahead of the inflationary cycle or at least the interest rate cycle. But then in your equity portfolio, we got used to these double-digit returns on the S&P 500. Guess what, folks? The average return of the S&P 500 going back to the 1930s is about 8%. Small caps generally beat large with much more volatility, and that hasn't happened either. So you're going to have to take your risk in a more normalized environment to generate return. Otherwise, you could be looking at returns that are basically going to mimic the rate of inflation, which isn't great. you got to beat inflation to, to really earn your money. So, Phil, I, I, I really want to turn this conversation to where do you allocate your portfolio uh, for 2022, what are you overweight and underweight? But I think, and I know, I know you're on the interview circuit. You get interviewed on uh, network TV all the time. Uh, on a recent interview I did, um, you know, my answer was, you don't have any alternatives, right? Bank accounts, even if the Fed raises interest rates, bank accounts are still earning next to nothing. Uh, money markets are earning next to nothing. What alternative do investors have? And you're looking at certainly the stock market. You're still looking at real estate. Um, but what other choices are there? And so if we are stuck with the limited number of choices, what does that portfolio look like in 2022? It's a dividend portfolio. Being Again, back to where we started, being paid the weight around have alternative types of investments. And when alternative, I mean, we can define what that exactly means, but you made a good one. Real estate, getting a 4% dividend. Maybe it's preferred getting a 5% dividend. Maybe it's floating rates. Maybe it's high yield debt. You can go into emerging market international debt and sometimes that'll pay more, which is a much more risky asset class. I would steer clear of that unless you're a really risky investor. On the equity space, you want balance. You want to find dividend bearing equity portfolios that'll give you two, 3% because dividend they limit your upside. You won't make as much in dividend-paying stocks when the market's hot, but you certainly don't lose as much because the downside is those dividends help to smooth off the bottom, off the losses at the bottom. And I think that's clearly a difference. And, I, and in that environment, having those dividends to create really a different portfolio. We grew up with a 50-50 equity to fixed income. We're probably going to be looking something like a 65 or 70% equity 
to a 20% fixed sum with 10% other types of things that are going to generate that income. And even your equity portfolio is going to be, have to be diversified to one, mitigate losses by being diversified, but also generate income. Yeah, Phil, I look, uh, another point you brought up, we've looked, just look at the last three years, and you can even look at the last five, the S&P performance has been just phenomenal. Um, but it's hardly unlikely we replicate that kind of performance the next three years, the next five. Um, so making sure you have a really balanced portfolio is critical, but you can't sit here and think that if you're an average investor, you're going to do 18, 20% a year in your equity exposure. My number one fear, Dominic, that I'm greatly concerned about all these young kids that came in on the Robin Hood and they traded GameStop and AMC. And now you're seeing these things really get hit hard uh, because at the end of the day, valuations and earnings do matter. And the expectations for lots of folks are that this is what the market does. Well, it does this when the federal government is artificially inflating the U.S. economy and the global economy. We had to do that to survive COVID. So we didn't have massive depression bankruptcies, people out of work, and I get why we did it. But you have to, at some point, rein that in, not because of the size of our debt. I'm not too worried about it because the cost of financing isn't that bad. If, we, if our rates go higher, it'll become worse. It's simply because at the end of this all, you can't artificially inflate it without the growth behind it to support where you inflated it to. So if Amazon is worth whatever, uh, I'll use Microsoft. And let's assume Microsoft, let's use Apple. That's the name everybody knows. We talked about it earlier. If Apple goes to $200 a share, at some point they have to earn enough money to validate $200 a share. It can't just because people are flush with cash and buying Apple because they like the name and they bought the latest and greatest phone. And that's what the market, that's what we call froth. The market is loaded with froth right now. It's like the froth on your coffee cup, that foam on the top, eventually it sinks down. Same thing. Eventually the froth comes off the market because the liquidity, the excess money that's been pumped in the system is now gone. Um, look, uh, I, I do agree with you that there is, a, but more important was an extreme amount of froth. But we saw what happened to the SPAC market. But most people don't even know what a SPAC was before this year. And you know, if you were an investor in that space, you haven't, for the most part, have not done really well. The MIM stocks, the ARC and Kathy Wood stocks. Um, who I, I think Kathy's a brilliant person, but but the speculative nature of these stocks. Um, you've, you've really been punished. I mean, you, you've lost some significant amount of money. So what I worry with you is that some of these younger investors maybe got a little scarred um, by playing in this uh, game instead of investing. Um, but hopefully, um, you know, they, they come back to this and realize that done properly, um, it is a life uh, venture that, that will pay off, right? Well, there's real investing and then there's gambling, speculation. And I actually think speculation is great, just not with all your money. You want to take 5% of your portfolio net worth, or maybe 10, and go out and speculate on new names? I do it in my own portfolio. I'm a very large fan of biotech stocks. To me, the technology today is changing the way medicines are developed. Look at this, the latest Pfizer pill developed in a blink of an eye. You know, normally that takes much longer, but because of artificial intelligence, quantitative engineering, and our ability to, uh, now that we've studied the human genome, we can create drugs faster than ever. So for me, I don't mind buying a biotech that has no revenue, but I'm only going to do that with a small portion of my net worth. The bulk of my money is going to be high quality stocks that I know are going to be there for the long run. When I see them on sale, like some of the travel stocks are still on sale because COVID hasn't recovered, there's an opportunity. So it's one thing to be opportunistic, buying good companies with great balance sheets, like you mentioned earlier, some of those tech names. Kathy Wood, for example, buy her ARK ETF and don't worry about it for today. Let's see it in five years, because I bet you in five years, it'll be double or triple where it's at. 
but it's but don't do that with the bulk of your money in the spec space where you're trying to time the market because there is no such thing as timing the market. It's time in the market, not timing the market. Um, look, uh, we'll we'll have to probably come back another day to talk about the psychology of why people like to buy high and sell low. Um, but clearly, that's what's going on right now in some of this space. Um, another day, another time. But we're going to take a break in a few seconds, Phil. And then I really want to kind of put a bow on it, if you don't mind. We have a very short segment. But really, what your expectations are for next year, what you think the S&P will do, a properly balanced portfolio. I think we're both on the same page on this one. But uh, I would love uh, your closing thoughts on 2022. Got it. Sure. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. So here we are. I can't get always shocked how quickly this, these segments go and there's so much more to talk about. So we're really down to a very short period of time here, Phil. One theme I want to throw in, I love the metals, copper, uh, lithium. Um, I think with we get some we got some money now for infrastructure. I think this transition to EV, I think metals is a is a really a spot to put some of your monies in. You know, you're paying up, unfortunately. You're looking at the price appreciation of some of these that have been incredible. And it's that supply chain issue has really been profound in this space. So I don't disagree with you. I just think you might be a little late. Uh, so if, you haven't, if you're not there already, I wouldn't go there yet. I do think it's interesting to look for, if we get a significant correction somewhere, that's a great place to pile into. I think that is an idea on the other side of it to have an alternative asset class. Not a gold bug, never, not a fan of gold. No, no, not gold. But if you want to go copper, lithium, heavy metals, to a degree, I don't play the oil markets, but I, I could see why someone may, might. We saw oil sell off a, a bit here, and it seems to have found the bottom. But then that gas market really got hit hard with the expectation that Europe's going, to, the world's going to be cold. I disagree. Global natural gas supplies are still very tight and down. You look at home heating costs being as much as 30 to 50% higher in the United States, maybe 80 to 100% higher in Europe. If you get in, if they're wrong about the weather forecast, which we know how weatherman works, I think you got a real opportunity to make some money in natural gas now. If you want to put that space on a commodity, that's where I would make my bet. All right, Phil, I'm putting you on the spot with three minutes to go. What does a great portfolio look like in 22? Uh, you're going to have, let's just do a, a traditional balance account will be 70% in equity, 65 to 70. Of that, let's assume of the equity position, you're going to have 25% in large cap growth, 28% in large cap value. Uh, and you're going to earn a big fat dividend. You are going to have a mid-cap exposure. I really like the mid-cap space. But if you want to go SMIB, because I think the best opportunity in U.S. markets for next year is dun, 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 small caps. The reason why, where is the consumer going to spend? Dominic said something very powerful a while ago. I put my money where the consumer is spending the money. Where are they spending it? In small cap stocks. Have an allocation of stocks, small caps. That's you're going to put a big chunk of your money, 10% of your portfolio, 10% of mid-cap, more or less. So we can round out the percentages from there. Your fixed income portfolio, add some alternative investments that are going to work against interest rates going higher, whether it's floating rate debt or it's high yield debt. Either one of those two, even preferred to, to a degree, all three of those asset classes will help you weather that storm. You can even go in niche, like a BBC fund, business development company, or even MLPs. I actually think the MLP market is stabilized. You get a gigantic dividend with volatility. 
alternative sources of income in the portfolio, and then keep your fixed income duration short, less than four years. So the average maturity of your bonds in your portfolio should be four years or less. You do that, you're going to get through 22, I think, just okay. And putting you on the spot again, what don't you want to own? Or what does somebody have in their portfolio today that you'd say, get out? Uh, if you're owning individual names and you haven't taken profit in the large cap tech names, you should. If you have overexposure to energy, you should start to think about when you can reduce that. You had a wonderful run. It's going to go higher. When would I reduce that exposure? Because it doesn't go on forever. Energy can be extremely volatile. And then if you're overweighted international, I think it's a mistake. I, I think international is an opportunity, just not yet. Uh, I think you want to wait for that opportunity to, to shine. And then unfortunately, emerging markets, the position that I'm in, I'm selling out of, uh, I guess I shouldn't be saying that, but thinking of selling out of it uh, simply because it hasn't worked and there's too many other headlines in the way right now. Well, Phil, uh, in, in full disclosure, we're tracking, you know, capital gain distributions and they're going to be quite hefty this year. A lot of the, uh, the mutual funds and, uh, are paying out some really substantial gains. So having some uh, things you can offset with losses, maybe not a bad plan. We're looking at our portfolio and doing a little harvesting right now, trying to get that uh, capital gain loss into more of a balance. So um, I'm not saying you should or would do that trade, but you might think about it. For sure. Um, For sure. Having said that, uh, look, I look forward to having you uh, back Phil, uh, hopefully uh, in the first part of next year and see somehow your ideas worked out. Uh, we've incorporated and will incorporate some of those ideas ourselves. So I, I think you're spot on with just about everything that you said. Uh, so if you're wrong, I'm going to find myself in the same shoes. I, I really don't want to do that. Uh, I won't be any fun either. So it's much more fun to make fun of you than myself. Um, and that doesn't happen very often. Uh, in any case, thank you for jumping in on this and helping us out. And uh, Mike will be back next week. Uh, I'll leave the closing thoughts to you, Phil, but thank you very much for joining us on this one. Well, I, I, first off, it's a great opportunity. I mean, thank you for having me up, having it on tonight. I do think investing is the way to success, no matter which way you go. But if we get a, if we get a little run into the end of the year, you know what? In January, take some profits. I want to leave you with that idea. In a transition year, if you made a bunch of money, markets are all time high, never a bad idea. Let the tax year roll over. Take some hefty profits. And by the way, go out and buy something with it. Don't go, go have some fun with your money if you made a bunch of money that you didn't expect to. That, that's my closing thoughts. And for more importantly, have a healthy and happy holiday season. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you all. And it's been a real pleasure to be on. Best wishes to you and your family, Phil. And again, happy holidays. Have a great evening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. 